0: chapter 12. So we're starting a short series called Back to Basics that will carry us through the um, beginning of the Lenten season. So that's it's crazy. That's only four weeks from now. So we have a four-week series and then we start Lent. Everybody take a deep breath. It's going to be okay. Um, so uh, so the, the Back to Basics series is intended to be uh, us kind of revisiting some of the core ideas, not Uh, I believe in a basic way, but in a way that kind of unveils them to us as we continue to grow closer to Jesus. When I used to coach basketball, uh, the first five to ten minutes of every practice was layup drills. And it was layup drills for first graders, and it was layup drills for 12th graders. It was layup drills for everybody, regardless of skill set. And if you thought you were too good to shoot layups, you had to shoot more layups. That's the way it worked. Because um, you need to be good at the basics. You need to be, if you got a breakaway layup, you best make that shot. We've been practicing every day for the last 10 years, right? That, that's the way these basics should be. They should be so deeply ingrained in us that we can quickly spot, that's not the truth. So we're going to look at what it means to be the church. We're going to look at what it means to be a disciple. We're going to look at what it means to hear the gospel. And we're going to look at what it means to be on mission. Because all of those things get distorted, and you need to be able to say, that's not the gospel. That's not the church. That's not what it means to be a disciple. We need to be aware of that stuff. And so that's why we want to dive back in, and so that's where we're going to be today. So the question is, what's the church? And that's a fascinating question, considering we haven't met together in person for about eight weeks, and over the last almost a year, we've been like not in-person, in-person, medium group, small group and over here over there, doing all kinds of crazy stuff. It, is this the church? Was last week, as we looked at the computer of the church, it, is the gathering the church? What, what is the church? What, what is the, the core essence of what it means to be the church? That's been defined so many different ways over the centuries. Back around... 325 A.D., I don't think any of you were around at that point, point. Uh, 325 A.D. roughly was the Council of Nicaea, and it was when the uh, first kind of uh, laid out belief system for the church was set up. And from 300 A.D. on, there's been a sense among some that the church is defined by belief. If you hold to a certain set of beliefs, then you're in the church. If you don't hold to that set of beliefs, you're outside of the church. The problem with that is, you can hold to a set of beliefs while not having a life that ties into the community. So belief doesn't always tend to work as a marker for the church. But if it's not belief, what is it? Some have defined it by mission. Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey all that I've commanded. That's the mission of the church. Is that what defines the church? Well, it's not a bad definition, but what happens when other non church organizations fulfill the mission of the church more effectively than the church does. For instance, take the last 50 years, both Campus Crusade and Young Life have arguably done a better job of the Great Commission than the church has done of the Great Commission. Does that mean that we're no longer the church? How, do, how does that work? Some people have said beliefs don't work, define the church by practice how we live. Rather than it being orthodoxy, define it by orthopraxy, right? Living, right? right? Belief. The problem is, or sorry, right? Practice. The problem is when that happens, we spend so much time refining and defining what those practices are that we never get around to actually living as the church. So it actually has the same problem as our belief system. We actually stop the process of Of living. And then there's some that you want to narrow that down even further and say it's not every practice, it's just the sacraments. The sacraments are the church. And when the sacraments are practiced, that's the church. The problem with that, of course, is it's so narrowly defined. All of those definitions have some merit. And my goal is not to be comprehensive as we define the church. My goal is to layer a way of looking at it on top of that. Marva Dawn is a lady, a theologian, who wrote a book called Truly the Community, and she describes, it's so fascinating, she describes the church community in its essence as a community of joy. But she doesn't use the word joy, she uses the word hilarity. And she takes that from the Greek word in Romans chapter 12, verse 8, uh, hilaritos, something like that. Um, anyway, it's a, a word that has the root word of hilarity, and she says, well, that just uh, uh, it kind of erupts off the page to her as, uh, as the essence of the church. Here's what she said. Listen to this quote. I'm deeply saddened by our failure to be what God designed the church to be. People who have been Christians for a while are not very often characterized by the profound gladness that marked the earliest followers of Jesus and that frequently bubbles forth in present day new believers. One of the most powerful reasons for our lack of gladness, hilarity, is that ours is a culture of solo efforts. It's fascinating because what Don's saying is this, we don't have joy because we're failing to be the church. We're actually not acting like the church So therefore, we can't be defined by joy at the essence of the church because we're living instead as individuals. Maybe we go to church, maybe we practice church, maybe we believe in the church, but we don't live like the church. And the essence of what it means for us to be the church is that we together as a community live in a certain way. Now, this was written dozens of years ago. Now enter a global pandemic. So we're already wrestling to be the church. We're already ineffective at being together as the church, practicing that kind of gladness. And now we're separate. Now we're seeing one another over screens. We're failing to connect before this. And so we really struggle to connect in the midst of it. What's it look like for now us to be the church? Because authentic community... Real, deep community has always been risky. There's always a risk. It's a, an emotional risk to, to bear your heart to someone else, to trust them, to, to commit to them and to have them commit to you. You're setting yourself up to get hurt. There's already an emotional risk. But now with a global pandemic, add in the spiritual risk of the fact that I'm gonna say it out loud, we're not unified on a whole lot of stuff. Like, there's people who think that we shouldn't be wearing masks and people who think we should be wearing masks. There's people who think that we should be handling it one way that we should be handling it another way. There's people who think that we have a race problem. There's people who don't think we have a race problem. There's people who think that the the Democrats are socialists and there's people who think that the Republicans are fascists. Like, it's all across the board, right? And and that's just in the church. I'm not talking about the rest of the world. And so you have this spiritual problem of disunity and then layer on top of it, not just the spiritual risk, but the physical risk of literally infecting someone else. Like, as we're community, we have to wrestle with this. There's also, of course, a physical risk of contracting the virus yourself. I talk to almost no one who's concerned about contracting the virus, but I talk to a bunch of people who are concerned about giving someone else the virus. And so now... You add on top of what was already a heavy emotional risk, spiritual risk, and physical risk, what do you do? Well, I believe that Romans chapter 12 actually doesn't just tell us how to live in community, but, but I believe, if you'll stick with me all the way to the end, it actually tells us that this moment in the midst of our tension and the pandemic and our race divisions and our political divisions, that actually this moment is the perfect moment for us to step into the community that God's created us to be, if we'll take the step. And so listen, I'm going to read Romans 12, starting in verse 3. And I'm going to read through verse 18. It's killer to me to not read any verse in Romans 12. It's it's packed full with all kinds of great stuff, but we're going to narrow it down to that. Reading, starting in verse 3 through verse 18. For by the grace given me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as one body we have many members And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought, to, give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. This is the word of God. There are three contrasts that Paul is going to lay out for us, and I want to walk through each of them. Um, The first two, I think, are significant. The third one, I think, is incredibly impactful for where we are right now. The three of them are this, being humble over being right. Second one is being active over being passive. And the third one is being joyful over being happy. Being humble over being right, being active over being passive, being joyful over being happy. So, Paul starts verse three: "For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think." If we just stop there, uh, I, I need to tell you immediately, you heard that wrong. Because you're reading this, I'm reading this in a 21st-century individualistic culture, and we hear Paul say, "Don't be arrogant." right? Isn't that, isn't that what you heard? Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. We, we so see the scriptures through the lens of self and individual that we can't even imagine what Paul's actually talking about here. Doug Moo in his commentary on Romans, which is a fabulous commentary on Romans, he, he makes the point that individuals can't approach transformation on their own. That community is bound up in transformation. If we're to be changed into the likeness of Christ, it can only happen with all of us. So when Paul says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, he's not saying don't be arrogant. He's saying, recognize that you're not enough and you never will be enough because you need these people around you in order to be the people that God's calling you to be. Um, we, we need each other Because Paul's not calling out our arrogance, he's calling out our selfishness, and our self-sufficiency, and our individualism. But here's the thing. If you just look around at the people who are here right now, which is a very small subsection of the entire York Alliance body, a bunch of these people don't agree with you on a lot of stuff. Right? Like there's, there, just in this room there's real issues and we're not even talking about the whole body. And, and that's, that's what Paul's saying. Don't think of yourself more highly than you are. Think of yourself with sober judgment. It, we have this deep concern about being right and we want to establish our rightness before we're willing to hear what that other person has to say about our life. So I'll have a conversation with somebody about my spirituality as long as they hold the same opinion I do about whether we should wear a mask while we're having that conversation. I'll I'll have a conversation about someone about my spirituality as long as they hold the same social justice position I hold, as long as they don't have the wrong uh, political sign in their front yard, as long as they're et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We we are so concerned about being right that being right trumps being... I didn't mean that on purpose... uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> really didn't. That's funny. Anyway, look at that. Um, we, being right trumps being loving. We fail to be loving because we're so concerned about getting it right. And when you read through Romans chapter 12, there's nothing in here about being right. Like Paul's not, this is, this is his theological treatise par excellence, And he is not telling you to be right. He's telling you to be loving. Now, you could read through this and say, yeah, 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 but the second half of verse 9, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. That's all I'm doing. Those other people, they're evil, and I'm holding fast to what is good, right? I'm pressing into the good stuff. But the problem is, it begins by saying, let your love be genuine. That word genuine is not a great translation into English. Um, It's actually Better without hypocrisy. That's a literal translation. Um, He's saying, let your love be deeply real for one another, even when you know the other stuff about them. So I know you voted for, and I still love you. I know that you believe, and I still love you. I'm not trying to convince you. I'm not trying to be right. I'm simply loving rather than trying to convince Let love be without hypocrisy. And then he goes on to say, hold fast to what is good in the ESV. that word is literally cling to what is good, and it's actually a marriage word. It's a covenant word. What he's saying is, you should have a real deep love that's bound up in your commitment that you make to one another, and that love and commitment trumps being right. It's more important than being right. I don't know if you know this, but we're actually not changed by argument. If you don't know, go onto Facebook and like, read some of the comments. Like, nobody ever wins a Facebook argument. And nobody ever wins the arguments that we're having about any of these things. Nobody wins. But you know, you know what happens? Love actually does change people. Arguments never change people, but love actually does change people. Unfortunately, very few of us are practicing it because it requires humility. Paul says, be humble instead of being right. Move on to the next one. He says, verse 4, be active, not passive. Listen to what he says. For as in one body we have many members, and members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Paul says this, we all have gifts that we're all called to use and we need to be using them. He says it so directly in verse six. I love, we just have that blazoned in your head. Um, it, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Take them and use them. And normally, non-COVID times, it becomes relatively easily easy to use our gifts. Now, I, I'm not saying we do it all the time. It's relatively easy. Look at the gifts that he's talking about uh, service and prophecy, teaching, exhortation, contribution, generosity, leadership, mercy. Those things can happen very naturally just in the setting of the regular gathering. I, Joe, man, I have a word for you. I just feel like God's pressing this into my heart. Can I just share this with you? Like it's a natural, easy way that we can encourage one another through a word of prophecy, through prayer, through an act of mercy, serving one another, caring for one another. Normally that's really easy. But then we're separate and we're all kind of in our own homes. And the easy opportunity starts to move away and then this other thing starts to settle in. And I think you're going to know what I'm talking about. You, you get into your home and you get into the, the routine of your home and you just stop wanting to. You just kind of get stuck in it. Like it's like I, I'm really kind of good here and I know I used to be moving in the spirit and I used to be listening to what he has to say about this. I used to be passing on words to this brother, or this sister, in this way, in this way. But I, I'm kind of comfortable now. I'm pretty, I'm pretty good. I think I'm okay. And we stop moving forward. We need to, instead of being passive, being stuck in our four walls, figure out ways to use the gifts that we've been given. And, and you know the principle of inertia, right? Once you start moving, it's really easy to keep moving. But once you stop, it's really hard to start moving again. And that's where we are. We've stopped. Many of us very naturally did things like encouraged and served, loved one another in mercy and grace, spoke words of prophecy over one another. It was a very natural thing for many of us. And now we've stopped for the most part. And it's going to take effort to get moving again. It's going to require us thinking creatively and pushing ourselves maybe out the door, instead of staying in the inside, or maybe picking up the phone, sending an email, making a phone call, do, doing something that moves us toward the people around us. But it's going to require us being active. We're going to have to take a step forward. The temptation is to barricade ourselves in, and what we must start to do is push ourselves out. Community groups are probably the greatest and simplest vehicle, because we can all use our gifts all together. The reality is, when we're all gathered on a weekend, it's tough for many of us to be able to use our gifts, because only so many people are needed. What's fascinating, and why I feel, I think some of us feel this lethargy, is that we need far fewer people to make this happen, and it's really hard to even find people to make this happen. Now, I know COVID's part of the problem, but honestly... It's tough to find people to do the couple things that need to get done right now because we're just not in the mode. We just don't like, eh, I don't know. I haven't been leaving the house much, so maybe I'll just stay home. Stepping into a community group, stepping into a discipleship partner relationship, you begin to be able to use your gifts in very natural, easy ways whether it's just a text chain, whether it's somebody that you're walking with and can encourage to pray for, words that you speak over one another, you begin the ball rolling again and it all starts to get moving. We need to be active over being passive. Why is it such a big deal? Well, stick your finger in Romans 12 and turn with me just back a little bit to Ephesians chapter 4. I think Ephesians chapter 4 is one of the most important passages for the church in all times, but certainly the church today. I just want to read for you, starting in verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 4. Paul's talking about Jesus in his gift to the church and his gifting to the church. He says this, He, Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith, from whom the whole body, joined together, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Okay, that's, that's a lot of words. And if you didn't track with all of it, here's what Paul just said. We're all given gifts. And if any of us are going to mature, it's going to be because all of us are using our gifts. It's a fascinating passage because he makes the case that I can't mature if you're not using your gift, and you can't mature if I'm not using my gift, that we belong to one another so tightly, the the community of faith is so essential to our spiritual growth, that if we're all not involved in doing what we're called to do, none of us can grow up to the maturity that God's called us to. Which makes the lack of maturity within the American church not super surprising, right? Like you just start to look at that and you say, wow, I wonder why we're not very mature. We have to be active because we need each other. There's no way around it. If we're to become mature, it's with all of us. All right, last point. This one's vitally important. Let me read for you back in Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation, constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and don't curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. How's that land on you? Because to me... I read it and I'm tired before I get to verse 18. I'm like, I just I read through and I'm like, don't be slothful in zeal. Like verse 11, st- I'm, I'm like, I'm already, I'm my zealousness left like I don't know like June or something. I don't know. Like I, are you kidding me? Like I, I don't feel like it. I'm tired, tired of all of this sick of the whole process. I don't want to make any more decisions. My, my deep, earnest prayer is that we are going to be meeting together in person now until Jesus comes home. I'm not sure exactly what else it's going to look like, but I do not want to go back and forth again. I'm so sick of it. I'm sick of making decisions. I'm sick of dealing with the fallout of all the decisions. I'm just tired of all of it. And I know that you feel the same way. So what do we do when we read? Don't be slothful. Don't be uh, step into the zeal. Love one another. The people who persecute you, bless them, love them. I'm like, do you get tired? Because I get tired. What's the problem? Well, neurobiologists—that's always where you look for truth, right? Trust me, we're gonna we're gonna get there. Neurobiologists tell us that we have a joy center in our brain. And that joy center continues to develop throughout our lives, and that when we experience joy, now get this, when we experience joy, that joy center is activated, we are capable of regulating our emotions, choosing proper emotions, and engaging difficult things with ease. I read that and think we have a joy problem. I think the reason I don't feel zeal and don't want to love my enemies probably has less to do with my sanctification and more to do with a lack of joy. So how do we get there? Well, another neurobiologist, Alan Shore from UCLA, makes this statement. Get this. We seek joy through the face of another. We need, we're created, that's my word, not his, we need to be the sparkle in someone's eye. Now, track with me for just a second. Stick your finger in Romans chapter 12 and flip back to the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 6, a blessing that you've probably heard dozens and dozens of times in your life. Listen as I read, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face To shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance, which is also another way to express his full gaze, his face, his countenance upon you and give you peace. When Numbers chapter 6 was written, it's almost as though thousands of years earlier they understood what the neurobiologists in UCLA were talking about, right? You need to be the sparkle in someone's eye. And guess what? When you engage the Lord the way that you should, the way that you're created to, you're the sparkle in his eye. Uh, If you don't believe me, let's uh, turn one more time. Turn to Psalm chapter 16. Psalm 16. It's a verse that you're probably pretty familiar with. Psalm, you will be at least when we read it. Psalm 16 verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, our pleasure is evermore. Okay, but what's really fascinating is when you look at that Hebrew word that is translated presence, it's the literal word for face. In the presence of your face, under your face, there is fullness of joy. We're wired to receive the gaze of God. All right, well, we should be able to do that now, right? To some degree, to some degree. Now, Dr. Jim Wilder, who, b- believe it or not, if you look at his biography, he's, he, his title is that he's a neurotheologian. Did you know that existed? Because I didn't know that existed. But Dr., Dr. Jim Wilder, a neurotheologian, wrote a book about joy. L- listen to what he says about the way that we engage this face concept. When we are the sparkle in someone's eyes, their face lights up with a smile when they see us. We feel joy from the moment we are born. Joy shapes the chemistry, structure, and growth of our brain. Joy lays the foundation for how well we will handle relationships, emotions, pain, and pleasure throughout our lifetime. Joy creates an identity that is stable and consistent over time. Joy gives us the freedom to share our hearts with God and with others. Expressing our joyful identity creates space for others to belong. Joy gives us the freedom to live without masks. He's not talking about those kind of masks. Uh, Live without masks because in spite of our weaknesses, we know that we are loved. We are not afraid of our vulnerabilities or exposure. Joy gives us the freedom from fear to live from the heart Jesus gave us. We discover increasing delight in becoming the people God knew that we would be. God's face towards us is the fullness of joy. And you and I are created in the image and likeness of God. And so that means the intrinsic wiring that we've been given is not simply seeking the face of God. It's seeking the face of one another. When I see you and you see me and your face lights up and my face lights up, we both have a fullness of joy that comes into us. And so now, some of you can see where this is going, we separate, we don't see one another's face, and if we do, it's on a screen and our brain knows the difference, and that joy starts to go down and down and down and down and down. Because we need to see each other. And even when we see each other, if you don't have really expressive eyes, right, it's, it's really hard to tell if I want to see you or not, if I'm really excited to see you or not, because we're not able to see one another's faces. There's a a longing that's in us to see one another's faces. And so what starts to happen then is we just start to get irritable. Like I don't have zeal. I don't have love for enemy. I don't have any ability to be able to to do the things that God calls me to do because I just don't feel like it because I need to see you respond to the word of God. You need to see me respond to the word of God. And the screen's not the same thing. You know why? Because you read Facebook and watch the news on the same device. And your brain knows that. And so now, all of a sudden, you want to make these crazy decisions because your joy tank is drained out. You know what happens when you go grocery shopping when you're hungry? It's bad, right? Like you end up with junk that you shouldn't have gotten. If you make decisions about where your life is going while your joy tank is drained, it will not go well for you. But we feel like we want to. Why? Because when we can't get joy from where it should be coming from, we will substitute. And we will do it subconsciously because we need it. So whether that is alcohol, whether that's food, whether that's social media communities, whether that's pornography, whatever it is, what what Paul would say is that we hoard our resources instead of being hospitable. We close up our lives. We curse those who persecute us. We are haughty. We're self-righteous. We're pompous. We repay evil with evil. It sounds like Facebook, actually. Um, Why? Because we feel like in the moment it's going to make us happy. And if we can't get real joy, we'd at least like to settle for happiness. And then we get it, and we feel lousy, and the joy tank's still drained, and we still have this deep longing in our heart that's not getting filled, and we just make one bad decision after another, over and over and over. We desperately need each other which is why we made the decision to start in-person gatherings back this weekend, even though it's probably a little bit early. Some of you probably observed, hey, the numbers are higher right now than when we stopped meeting in November. In fairness, there was about two dozen of you that told me your Thanksgiving plans before we made that last decision, so anyway. But um, Thanksgiving isn't now, so that, that helps. But, but the reality is we've gotten to a place where we're so drained out. We need each other. And we need each other in safe ways. Look, I recognize not everybody's going to be able to come to this. And that's okay. I totally get it. But we have got to figure out ways that we connect with one another. It's, it, we're at a place where we're desperate for it. Because if not, we start to go grocery shopping hungry. We start to make bad decisions one after another. Because we're not at the place where we need to be. We, we're people who God has given the gift of zeal and mercy and grace, given love or at least the ability to love enemies. To, to, that's, that comes from the grace of God. But if that tank's not full, we can't do it. Okay, so, so what do we do? I, I want to give you two hopefully practical things that we can step into. First one is this, we must figure out ways to engage with one another. And so that may be a community group, that may be a discipleship partner, that may be coffee sitting 15 feet apart in a big room, that may be going for a walk in the cold with a hat on and while you shiver and try to talk to one another, okay, it I, doesn't matter. We we must figure out ways to connect, and if the only way you can do it is on the phone or on FaceTime, it's better than nothing. It's not great, but it's better than nothing. We have to figure out ways to be connected, and that requires us all being intentional. That's person by person, one after another, us saying, we will not settle for being self-sufficient and individual. We're going to connect with one another. We're going to step out and connect. We have to figure out ways to do it. If that's a community group, get in a community group. If it's a discipleship partner, find one. If you need help, we'll help you, but you're probably better at it than we are, so find somebody. Uh, Journey with each other. We, We have to figure out ways to connect with one another. That's number one. And number two is this. We need to engage the face of God as a community. This is what I mean. Something happens in you when you see the person across the aisle experience the beauty of Jesus in real time. Like part of why this is such a struggle is that when you sit and look at a screen and see me talking to you, you don't see the word land on anybody else. You just feel it land on you. And so sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. And honestly, it probably does less and less and less as the vehicle is a screen. And so there's no sense of corporate, we are resting in the face of God. We need to be people who together seek the face of God. We need to see one another respond to the truth. We need to see people say, I I want you to pray with me. And we need to see people gather around with masks and distance and all the safe stuff to pray for one another. We need to see people bathe in hand sanitizer and lay hands on each other and pray blessing. Like we, we have to do that kind of stuff. Like, it's just, it's got to become part of the way that we live, or we risk going another six, eight, ten, twelve, I hope not, oh please Jesus, but uh, however long, months, while, while the joy tanks just continue to drain. We have to engage the truth together. That's why corporate worship is so important. I don't know about you. I don't see a whole lot of people having a passionate worship experience in front of their TV in their living room. And if I walked by and saw somebody doing that in their, in their house, I'd probably have to call the cops. Like, what in the world's going on in there, right? Like, we just feel awkward. But when we come here, we can raise our hands and we can sing and we can say, oh, my goodness, God has gifted Jessica with a beautiful voice. We're just going to follow right along. We're in, right? Like, we can do that together. We have to do that together. And so we have to connect with one another, person to person, and we have to seek the face of God, not just individually, but communally. Listen to, as we wrap up, what Marva Dawn said at the end of that section of that book. It's not going to be on the screen. I'm just going to read it for you. She makes this, this statement. What would it be like if the Christian church were truly a community that thoroughly enjoyed being itself? Now think about that phrase. If the church was a community that enjoyed being itself, it seems to me that it would change the world. And I think that's true. And I think it's more true right now than it's ever been. Because the entire culture around us feels just like you feel. And if we can truly be the community, if the church, York Alliance, local church body is defined by joy, It makes a real impact in the world. And so I want to encourage you this week, tonight, as we're worshiping, praying, as we're getting ready to leave, as you're going to your cars, use your gifts. Take the gift of encouragement, the gift of prayer, prophecy, speak words of blessing over one another. This week, Ask God, who, who do you want me to call? How do you want me to connect? What's it look like to just do a little bit? And as the inertia starts, the stone starts to roll down the hill. And we start to start to move again. Let me pray over us and uh, we're going to hear a blessing that reminds us of the beauty of the face of God. Jesus, I thank you that your love for us is never failing and that your face is is always turned towards us in grace that we are the sparkle in your eye and when we see one another you give us joy because of the connection that you've given us between one another. I thank you for the, the skip in my heart when I saw all each of these brothers and sisters walk in tonight, just walking down through the parking lot, seeing people and being able to just say, "Yeah, I remember you." Like it's so good. God, thank you for that. I pray that we would be people marked by joy, hilarity that the gladness of heart that you give to us as a gift would be the overflow of our lives. And so God, help us to seek your face together now and tomorrow and this week and again and again and again as you fill that joy tank up and we experience more and more of you. In your gracious name, your loving name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let me ask you to stand and to sing or just receive